Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, great show for you today. I'm welcoming back Matt Singer, the wonderful film critic. He is the editor of ScreenCrush.com, uh, has written a lot of great uh, movie essays, both in uh, geek topics and uh, mainstream movies. He is also the co-host and creator of Film Spotting SVU Unit, which is a streaming video unit. And uh, they look at great movies that go uh, directly to streaming, even ones that, you know, obviously did make it to the theaters. But there is such a giant amount of movies that, you know, don't go to the theaters and, and go right to uh, the streaming services and cable. It's uh, great to know what to watch. And I think uh, he does a great job letting us know. We're talking today about uh, the current uh, superhero film season. We can't help but talk about... Um, the near misses of Warner Brothers' efforts, uh, Batman v Superman, and certainly Suicide Squad. Now, Suicide Squad doing slightly better than Batman v Superman. Um, there are lower expectations as far as hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in profit versus uh, the billion dollars in grosses they were hoping for with Batman v Superman. Didn't reach it. Uh, mixed signals as far as the reaction to Suicide Squad. The critics don't like it. Um, a lot of people do, and I've certainly had my, um, you know, friendly disagreements on, on Twitter and Facebook with, uh, with listeners. Uh, I thought the story was a mess, but I thought that um, Margot Robbie, Will Smith, uh, Jay Hernandez, among others, uh, did a very good job of acting. Uh, Will Smith, I would even just say adequate. I mean, he was Will Smith, which is fine. You know, that's, that works in a lot of movies. But, again, I just kind of expect a little bit more, and also... As I was talking about with Rob Meyer Burnett last week, um, when it comes to heist movies, or as Rob called a man on a you know man on a mission movie where you put a team together, um, I just felt like the story fell apart, and it didn't make sense. It didn't. The team did not fit the task, and sometimes that's the case. But it just it didn't make sense. And you know we heard all the stories, and Matt and I go over them in terms of outside editors coming in and reshuffling and uh, certainly additional scenes to make the film funnier and stuff. Um, what was left was, for some people, an entertaining movie. For others, um, a mishmash of a story that didn't make sense. And again, just felt like it wasn't as good as it should have been. So uh, we talk about that. We talk about the problems that Warner Brothers faces. Uh, we talk about uh, summer movies in general. It's not, not the greatest summer movie season. But... Um, Lots of interesting movie topics with Matt Singer on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where tremendous deals are happening right now. In fact, you can get 45% off all DC and Marvel titles other than uh, other specials that are happening at InStock Trades. Um, there are clearance titles up to 70% off. And um, as always, if your order is $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping. They make it easy on savings on books like this. Here's some of the deals of the week. You can get Wonder Woman by George Perez. Trade Paperback Volume 1 is 50% off. It's just $12.49. You can get the crossover between Batman and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 50% off, $12.49. Corto Maltese, the graphic novel The Ethiopian. Hugo Pratt at his best. I love this book. I love the entire Hugo, or I should say Cordo Maltese, I'm going to say Hugo Maltese uh, series. You know, Hugo Pratt is exceptional. And really, uh, this is one of my favorite European comic series. Uh, it is 30% uh, off. It's just $17.49. Another great book. How about the Polar series from Victor Santos? Now, you might remember Victor Santos 
worked with Ryan Azzarello on a uh, Vertigo graphic novel called Filthy Money, or Filthy Rich. And it was called Filthy Rich. And uh, Victor was the artist. Here he is the writer and artist. It's an amazing series. It's kind of uh, hitman, espionage kind of stuff. This is volume three, which is No Mercy for Sister Maria. I have volumes one and two, and I love them. I absolutely am getting volume three. Uh, 42% off. It's just $10.43. Exceptional series. Big fan of Polar. I absolutely recommend this, and you should check it out. More great savings. We'll talk about them later in the show uh, from InStockTrades.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much for your support, League. Uh, really uh, very uh, important to uh, the cause of uh, Word Balloon. If uh, Word Balloon is free, but if you've uh, if you enjoy what I do and you can spare the money, would you consider subscribing to Word Balloon because it helps me travel to conventions and make the connections, and it uh, also helps uh, directly in this program. So you don't have to subscribe, like I said, but if you can afford it, if you think what I do here um, is you know worth the price of a comic book, even a dollar a month, if you can spare that, that's terrific. Uh, thank you very much, League. Your, uh, your ranks continue to expand, and it shocks the hell out of me, and I really do appreciate it. So thank you once again, League of Word Balloon listeners. Okay, without further ado, let us uh, pick up our conversation with Matt Singer, uh, you know his work. Uh, he is a guy that has done work in the past for the IFC channel and uh, IndieWire. Currently, he is the editor at ScreenCrush.com, and it's a pleasure to welcome him back to Word Balloon. Matt Singer, welcome back to Word Balloon. God damn, it's been years. I apologize that it's been that long, Matt. Oh, it's, uh, it's good to be back. Good to talk to you. <laughs> How are things going at uh, Film Spotting uh, SVU? Uh, going well. Yeah. Going well. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we are, we're, we're having a good time. It's, it's, uh, you know, covering the, uh, the streaming world more and more. That's, that's where the, that's, you know, that's how people are watching movies. So it's a good thing to have a podcast about. Amen. And also, um, you know, it, much like Redbox, you know, there are just some movies that don't make it to theaters, but are still interesting films. In fact, and I'm going to reference him a lot, I think, in this conversation. I, I spoke last night to uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, who um, just edited a, a time travel film called Paradox that he said is on Netflix. And I don't know if that's mm-hmm. come. Have you, have you seen that? I don't know if you've had the chance to see that one yet. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of things are going straight to Netflix and Netflix, of course, is now making so many things of its own that just keeping up with their content is, is impossible, basically. Sure. You know, while we're, while we're on the subject of streaming video, um, I saw, and I'm forgetting the, uh, John and I forget what his last name is. It starts with an L he's the president of FX news. And someone had asked him if we've reach that oversaturation point yet with all the streaming video that's available now in addition to cable in addition to satellite all the other channel options that we have now and he said no that they are still going to be making he thinks even more programming and he expects there to kind of be a breaking point around he says 2018 but that said he still thinks there's going to be still a lot of original programming film and television uh, made for these uh, streaming units, and I don't know with your coverage if you've got any indication of where we are and where we're going. Uh, that was probably John Landgraf, I think, is the head of FX. There you go. Uh, he would he would know better than me. He's the president of a gigantic <laughs> network, so I'll I'll take his word for it. All I know is that the user, 
I can't keep up with it. And granted, I have, you know, I have a young daughter, so I'm watching less than I used to. But just if, even if you didn't have anything else, if you just had Netflix, I don't know if you'd be able to keep up with all of their original content sure. between the TV shows, between the movies, between the documentaries, between the, th- the things they're making, the acquisitions they make. I mean, every once in a while, as we're putting together our show and we're looking for things to cover, I will come across something that I didn't even know that they made or that existed, it, sure. it, that, that they just sort of quietly put up, and you go, when did this come out? <laughs> it's, 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 and, and, I, and I consider myself fairly informed, at least about you know what's going on at Netflix, and it, it's sort of shocking how much content they are generating, how many hundreds of millions of dollars they're spending on content. It's 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 unbelievable. Yeah, and then you throw in Amazon and and Hulu. Right. And Amazon and, and Hulu. Yahoo and, Screen, I know is one. Yeah. I mean, you know, do you have um all the ones that uh you need to subscribe to like Hulu and Amazon and obviously Netflix? I do have all I do have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. Yes. Um, and then there are, you know, then you hear about all these other channels that are starting their own, uh, you know, their own streaming services. Like sure. CBS is starting a streaming service with the new Star Trek series they're making, which actually sounds really interesting. Oh, yeah. And it just seems like uh, that is the way of the world, for sure. And, and uh, certainly when my daughter is, of, you know, of age to care about these things, I can already envision, you know, explaining to her what cable was and, and <laughs> how people used to buy used to buy uh, a cable. And she's gonna. I can just imagine being, you know, basically becoming my grandparents and and being the old fogey who's like, back in my day, they used to show one movie on television a hundred times. There was no on demand. That's so funny. You could know, demand things, but no one would listen. <laughs> well, you know, it's sad. Bendis was telling me with his little uh, kids that they don't, you know, especially the very little ones. It's like play it again, and it's like, no, no, no honey, I'm sorry, that was on cable. And it's like play it again. <laughs> it's like no, it's <laughs> we can't. I know. I, 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 that's one thing that I, I've, I've talked with a few colleagues about and thought about is how will like sort of the on-demand ethos affect like this generation of viewers? I mean, there are so many movies that I feel like I'm not, not to diminish their accomplishments creatively, but there are a lot of movies that I know I love that people of my generation love in part because they were just on so many damn times that we, (laughs) that we just watched them over and over again and kind of came to love them faults and all warts and all, uh, and and if we had had a choice, if we had had the availability that there is for someone now to just put on, uh, you know, movie X or TV show Y, to have it all at the touch of a button, available instantly on demand whenever we wanted, there's no way we would choose to watch some of these things. But because <laughs> that was what was on, you know, because Congo was on HBO 7,000 times, like I could almost quote the entire movie. Hilarious. No one would choose to do that. <laughs> Uh, so I'm very curious to see how the choice and what is available, how that shapes the young critical minds of the next generation. I'd be very interested to see that. You're killing me, man. Congo, that's awesome. I was going to suggest maybe Eddie and the Cruisers, but that shows my age. Because yes, you're you're a little bit older than me, but yeah, that's a, that's another perfect example.
<laughs> oh my god! Well, at some point in the conversation, because I'm, you're always good for this, I am going to ask for some direct-to-video streaming suggestions uh, for you know the geek-minded uh, uh, movie viewer, and that's why I was so happy when when Rob last night mentioned this film Paradox, and I'm like, oh, you know, I'll take a chance on that. So, but let's talk about some of the, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, near the end of the summer superhero season. Uh, we're less than a week since Suicide Squad has come out. Um, now, you do have a baby, so I don't know. Have you seen Suicide Squad? Yes, I have seen Suicide Squad. Okay, and let's, uh, I, I'll, I'll save my uh, thoughts on it, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I, I have a feeling we're both leaning towards the same direction, but what did you think? You'll let, you'll let me uh, handle this one? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in. Don't worry. Oh, okay. I thought you were uh, serving me up on a platter here to receive all the hate mail. Very well. That's fine. I've gotten plenty of it already. Really? No, I, uh, I was, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I was, I was not a fan of uh, the uh, Suicide Squad. I did not care for that movie. I'm sorry to say. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was a total mess. And I, I was, you know, I wasn't a fan of, a uh, huge fan of Batman versus Superman, Batman very Superman, Batman v Superman, whatever you want to call it. Yep. But, uh, you know, I, at least looking back on it now from this perspective, it's like at least I felt like there was a director there. You know, I felt Zack Snyder's, his personality, for better or for worse, was all over that movie. And there were things about it that, um, you know, were sort of confusing, or you could tell were sort of edited almost to the point of not really making any sense. A lot of the stuff involving Lex Luthor and his his Michigoth plot to uh, turn these heroes against one another, and we could talk about the characterizations up and down and whether they were, you know, they really fit Batman and Superman or not. But to a certain extent, that's a that's a taste thing. That's a matter of opinion. Mm-hmm. And I could see someone liking that movie and enjoying it, and I don't really have a problem with that. Suicide Squad, to me, it just felt like a, like a total mess. And it was, I saw the movie at a press screening before that story in The Hollywood Reporter, um, which I'm not sure if you read, but I that have, came but out. Yeah, you tell the details. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, basically saying that the movie was really rushed through production, that they announced it. And uh, they had basically like two years from start to finish to make the entire thing. And that the screenplay was written in something like six weeks. And, and as they were making it, they weren't entirely sure what they wanted the movie to be. And David Ayer, who's the writer and director, he wanted something a little darker. But the, uh, the studio wanted something lighter. And they were making different versions of the movie right up until the release date and According to this Hollywood Reporter article, they even had the people who cut the trailer for the movie, which was great. The trailers were a lot of fun. They actually had them consult on the edit of the movie as if to say, well, you seem to understand our movie better than we do. Why don't you try to edit it together for us? Very strange. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, and the finished movie, it just felt like a mess to me. It was just... The, the structure was so strange, and the cuts were so jarring, and the plot made no sense. And it barely felt like a David Ayer film to me. I mean, I like David Ayer. I've enjoyed uh, several of his movies. I like End of Watch. I like Sabotage. He's a director who has, to me, again, like him or not, he has a very specific point of view. His movies feel like somebody is making them. And this barely felt like one of his movies. So I was looking forward to it. Like I said, I like David Ayer. And I love the old John Astrander Suicide Squad comics. Of course. 
that was it was a huge letdown for me. What about yourself? Well, I I agree, and again, I in my conversation with Rob Burnett last night, he made the very cogent point that uh, you know these kind of films are a formula that have been around for a really long time. I know that uh, John likely had uh, Dirty Dozen in mind when he right. created the Suicide Squad. Um, sure. You know, I mean, and, and how many television shows and films have either had this kind of caper or, as uh, as Rob described it, men on a mission sort of film yeah. of this is this kind of specialist, this is this kind of specialist, we need to get the team together, this is the objective, and then you see them execute it. The Italian job recently is a great example. Ocean's Eleven is a great example. Yeah. Um, how do you fuck that up? Because that's really, it's kind of as basic as a Western. It really is. And in fact, Magnificent Seven is another great example of that. And that's the thing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I, Again, I would ask uh, Air and the producers, how do you fuck that up? Because I did think, in the positive sense, that Margot Robbie did a decent performance as Harley Quinn. Um, yep. Will, Will Smith, I felt his Deadshot was adequate. I didn't think he was amazing, but he gave us a Will Smith performance, and that fit Deadshot, so I got no problem with that. But the the lack of structure in terms of story, reasons why this team was put together, them coming together as a team was really never explored. Uh, Jay Hernandez, by the way, very interesting as El Diablo. But, um, but yeah, I just, like you said, something was lost in the editing, um, I do know that also that Hollywood Reporter sa- story said there were two competing cuts of the film, Ayers cut and the edit uh, job that they did, and this, the edit job that man- was mandated by the studio won, and Ayers kind of stepped up and said, look, I'm the director, I stand by what we released, but what's frustrating, and the same thing happened with Batman versus Superman, and we'll see when the DVD for Suicide Squad does come out, if there is a more cogent story on the DVD, instead of what we got in the theater, this is a really bad thing that has been happening, really, and I think Avengers Age of Ultron is another example, where it's like, fuck you guys, why can't the theater version be the best version? Because there have been years of movies where we do get additional scenes, and fine, they're great to see, but they but the the theatrical version always seems to be able to tell the story the best way and as fun as these extra scenes are they're not necessary but in the case of batman v superman i would say the same thing about age of ultron to a degree but really batman v superman and we'll see about suicide squad no there's got to be more of a story there that ended up on the cutting room floor and fuck you for making us want to or or if we're at all interested you know have to also buy the dvd to get a cogent story it, do, it doesn't make sense it's a pretty uh from a uh, financial standpoint it's pretty ingenious if that's what they're doing on purpose <laughs> and i'm not saying that they are i, I don't no think they are either they are yeah i don't but think so fact, either. but the idea that you release the sort of bastardized version in theaters partly because you know these are superhero movies they have to be pg-13 to reach a wide enough audience to make back the budget um, although Deadpool sort of put the lie to that, but that's yep. at least the truism that they're, you know, they're meant to be for a mass audience. They need to be PG 13. So you can't have the R rated Batman versus Superman. You can't have the R rated suicide squad. So you release sort of this watered down theatrical cut. You're going to get the hardcore fans you're g- anyway, but then you can basically sell them the same movie twice by saying, well, were you not satisfied with that? You want to see the real version. You're going to have to pay for the Blu-ray. I mean, if if it's a actual plan as opposed to a scrambling around desperation sort of thing, 
it's sort of ingenious in the sense that they're getting people to pay multiple times for the same thing. Uh, so I, you're right. David Ayer has said, this is my cut of the movie. But would I be shocked if there was an ultimate edition of Suicide Squad the same way there was of Batman vs. Superman? Not in the slightest. Yeah. And I have to say, I would, be, I would be more interested to see the ultimate edition of Suicide Squad than I was uh, Batman v Superman because this movie really felt like it was just totally a mishmash in terms of the, the editing of it. I mean, like you said, the, the, the man on the mission plot is so simple and so universal and this version it's like it's man on a mission without a mission yes we have no mission because the first 30 minutes of the movie is like it's literally people sitting in a restaurant chatting about a personnel binder like going through each member of the team one by one and and there is no reason really to to put them together i guess you know, Amanda Waller says that it's, uh, you know, we have to be prepared for the next Superman who comes to Earth. Maybe they won't be so friendly. And that's, a, you know, that's reasonable, I suppose. Although I don't know why if you're preparing for a Superman, why you would put together a team that has, like, a crazy lady with a baseball bat <laughs> and a guy who can climb really good. Like, these, these powers don't necessarily fit with the mandate as stated in the movie, but okay, whatever. <laughs> but they don't, you know, there's no purpose. Like you, it's like, it's like an ocean's 11. Yes. There's a lo- There's a stretch of the movie where they're putting together this team, but almost from the first scene, there is a motivation for the team to be assembled. You yep. know what they're doing. This is like, if uh, suicide squad is like, if Danny ocean got out of prison, it was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to steal anything, but just, case I want to. I'm going to put together a team. I don't know what I'm doing, what I need them for, but just in case, I'm going to go meet some people and maybe we'll, maybe we'll do something. Maybe we'll have a heist. Maybe we won't. I mean, I was sort of baffled by it, and I refuse to believe David Ayer, who's a very smart guy, who's made some very well-structured movies. I refuse to believe the version I saw in the theater a few weeks ago was the original scripted version in terms of putting together the team and the motivation that, that drove them. I cannot believe that the version I saw was what he initially came up with. There's no way. I agree with you. I, um, do you remember Affleck's Daredevil? Did you ever see the director's cut of that? You know, I have seen the director's cut of that, and I still don't think it's a great movie, but it's, it's certainly better than the theatrical cut, yes. for sure. Yes, and that's another example of... I think production interference, and again, this was pre-Iron Man, so this really wasn't a quote Marvel movie. Uh, and they, you know, they they decided to uh, beef up the Jennifer Garner Ben Affleck uh, relationship and the Electra Daredevil relationship in lieu of a very specific story plot with uh, Coolio that really explains right. what the Kingpin was doing in New York and why he was a menace. And I mean. It's right. and it's and and yeah, you, you know, I remember seeing them going, oh, well, this is the version they should have released. But that was always kind of like I said, that just seemed to be an exception. Or you would get things like um, when they would show Superman on network TV and suddenly give us another 40 minutes of footage or even the Star Trek movies would have extra scenes. Um, again, it's it's OK. But but usually you would think that the theatrical version should be the best version. And like you said, I don't think it's by design. I do think it's by rushing, possibly to make that PG-13 cut also 
uh, making sure that it's a certain amount of time so that there's enough view, uh, showings of it in theaters so that they can make enough money. But all I know is, right. yeah, it's, I mean, they're really fucking up. And compared to what's happening at Fox and at uh, Marvel, you got to wonder. I don't think it's a permanent problem. I mean, really, I, and, I, and I, under, I can appreciate fans that are frustrated. And even Rob was like, I don't think they're ever going to get it right. I'm like, well, I don't think that's the case. I think eventually the right people at, you know, Warner will kind of write the ship and we will get some cogent films that, that make sense and, and the theatrical version will make sense. <laughs> and, you know, and you'll get those like the Spider-Man 1.2 or 2.0 and things like that where you might get an ultimate cut that has more scenes, but not again at the expense of the theatrical release making sense as a story. So I don't know. What do you I mean? You know, again, I mean, I know John, is it John Berg? I really don't know John Berg. Is John, John Berg and Jeff Johns have now been named heads of DC Films and are going to kind of, you know, moving forward, they're the guys that are really kind of the uber producers and everything that are kind of looking over things. Does John Berg have that same executive producing role with Ben Affleck uh, as a Brian Grazer would say with Ron Howard? You know, I don't know. That's I've read the same thing that they're the people in charge now. Uh, but you know, that was supposedly a few months ago, and I mean, maybe it was too late to save Suicide Squad. I don't honestly know. But if they made any changes to the movie, uh, they weren't great. Yeah. So, well, I kind um, of, I kind of think it was after that. I, that's what I thought. I, yeah, I kind of felt possible. like maybe yeah. it was a maybe it was a lost cause. I mean, I, I'm very curious to see. <laughs> I'm very curious to see what happens with Wonder Woman because, sure. you know, hopefully, I mean, if that one doesn't at least, you know, isn't at least an improvement, um, then I think you really have to wonder what the heck is going on over there. I mean, to me, the encouraging things about Wonder Woman, uh, besides the trailer, because I, I like the trailer a lot, but I like the trailers for Suicide Squad. So sure. I'm sort of very skeptical about that. I mean, the things that excite me about Wonder Woman are it's set in the past, which means they can't shoehorn in a lot of characters, which is, <laughs> I think, really been a major problem for the DC movies so far. Is they're sort of, I think, in their desperation to catch up to Marvel, they've really tried to kind of rush the process of building out this whole universe. Yes. When you look at how Marvel did it, and I know some DC fans get so angry when you compare them and say that, you know, Marvel's not the only way, and that's not, you know, and DC should be different, and et cetera, et cetera. And I can respect that. But if you look at the way that Marvel did it, they, you know, they made Iron Man, they made the Incredible Hulk, they made, you know, every Avenger got their own movie before there was the Avengers. Right. Uh, you've got time to sort of develop the characters. They were very patient, um, and so when they got to the Avengers, all the characters had their own showcases. We understood them. We knew who they were, even if you hadn't read the comics. It was very easy to understand who these people were. We had really already come to love the movie versions before they had to share a movie together. And DC has done like the opposite thing where, yeah, we had Man of Steel, but immediately they jumped to Batman versus Superman. Batman didn't get his own movie. And in Batman versus Superman, they threw in Wonder Woman, who admittedly was like the best part of that movie. Uh, But then you also had the scenes where they're trying to explain the Flash and maybe Darkseid and... You know, Aquaman. all of that extra stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, Aquaman. And then Cyber. the same thing with Suicide Squad, where you have this huge <laughs> team of characters, most of which the general public has never heard of before. So they're trying to explain all of them. 
plus they throw in Batman, plus you have the Joker, who serves no purpose at all, except to potentially set up a, a, a more important appearance down the line. So my hope is with Wonder Woman, which is set, I think, during World War One, right. you know, they, they basically can't include too many other characters. <laughs> so that's encouraging to me. And I just, I just hope that they maybe have like three or four scenes set during the daytime because <laughs> there's so many of these movies, the DC movies are so dark, literally dark. And they're just, it's hard to even see what's going on in Suicide Squad. I just found myself going, what is happening? I can't even follow the action on the screen. And based on the trailer, it looks like there are a few scenes set during the daytime. So, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful for, for Wonder Woman. I hope it's, I, ho- I hope it's great. It's, it's no fun being the guy who's like, these movies stink, and then getting yelled at by angry comic book fans. Because I've loved comic books my entire life. I know you do, I, Matt. I, I, so it's, I, 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 I'm accused of being, I don't know, a, uh, a, a hater or yeah. a shill or a whatever. But I, I remain hopeful. And I, I'm, I'm, I am looking forward to Wonder Woman. I hope it's great. Well, and I didn't see the, the, any you know backbiting you might have been getting over at IndieWire uh, for your review. But... I, I know you well enough that yeah I mean I know I know you would like these movies to be good and hey man I as as someone older than you I am a life I was a DC fan before I was a Marvel fan when it comes to comic books I want the DC films to be good as well and I you know it's it's very frustrating and like you say too when they cram these other scenes in it really is so desperate. And I mean, God, the the flash little cameo with Captain Boomerang and everything. I mean, that was it was cute, but it really didn't serve any purpose. And my God, that post credit scene or that mid credit scene with oh, Amanda Waller, God. Bruce Wayne. It's like, fuck you. We've already done this. They he's got the information from Luther. This was an empty yeah. scene. It wasn't necessary. It's it didn't further anything in that way that when you go back to that first Iron Man movie. All of a sudden, hey, I'm Nick Fury. I need to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. What's that? And then, and then we're blank, and it's like, oh, that's awesome. Or that you introduce Black Widow and really give her something to do in Iron Man 2. And you introduce Hawkeye and give him something to do during Thor. So that, like you said, by the time we do have the movie, everybody kind of understands not only the main people, but even these, these secondary Avengers as well. They've been explained. And, you know, you're, yeah, it's just, it's taking your time, doing it patiently. And I don't understand this mad rush. Um, what drove me nuts about the Justice League trailer, that interaction between Flash and Bruce Wayne, it's like, I, I can't help but think, yeah, uh, nice, good job taking crib notes from what we just got in Captain America Civil War, because it pretty much was the Iron Man Spider Man team or uh, scene. Just, you know, <laughs> switching bodies and everything. It, it felt right. a little too comfortably like that. And it's okay. Right. And actually, I like it. It has made me like what they're doing with the Flash a bit more because the other problem that the DC films have is um, everyone's scratching their head, going, "God damn, you got a great guy playing the Flash." And nothing against the actor that they've got set up for the movies, but it's like it just doesn't make sense. Even more so than when they've played with uh, Superman Returns during Smallville, and you had Tom Welling. I mean, Jesus, I, I just think Grant Gustin has just, like, walked in and has been this perfect Barry Allen. It's like, man, you're, you're really kind of setting yourself up to be questioned at, at, at worst, or at best, I suppose. And hopefully it will work out, and we'll have two great versions of The Flash. But again, I think you're kind of putting yourself behind the eight ball, having this very good television version running around. 
Yeah, I mean, and and even if he's great, you're just like you said, you're inviting comparison. Yeah, you know, you're 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 setting yourself up for potential failure just because you have this version that people already love, and then you're going to have another version. If it's not good, then they're like, well, exactly what you said. It's like, well, why did you recast the role? Why did you have to do a totally uh, different version of the character when we've got a perfectly good one already? It's, uh, you know, it's funny, this, this, the TV movie divide, it's tr- tough because it feels like the DC guys have figured out the TV side a little bit better. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> they're they're they the, you know it's like they it's sharing the characters becomes the sort of difficulty which is you know how do you decide who's on TV how do you decide who's in a movie and and Marvel has sort of treated it more like a separation of church and state even though it's supposedly a shared universe there there does seem to be sort of these very clear distinctions between the film and the TV side and there hasn't really been much overlap even if they're supposedly coexisting. They haven't had to create two different versions of a character, whereas DC is sort of hurtling headlong towards this universe or multiverse, I suppose, where they're going to have multiple versions of the characters simultaneously in different medium. And, you know, I think for hardcore comic fans, that could be fun because it does kind of echo the sort of Earth-1, Earth-2 comic book landscape. But I think for more casual viewers, there's going to be some people who are going to be confused and maybe even turned off by that. No, I agree with you. Another point that Rob made last night comparing the Marvel films to the DC films, he said Kevin Feige is kind of a, and as he put it, a David O. Selznick, a guy that really understands beyond the creative side, the technical side and and, and the studio side and really understands how how, how making movies work, both from an executive standpoint and a creative standpoint. And that DC has a lot of executives kind of, you know, stirring around and, and or I should say Warner kind of running around making suggestions. And but they do they don't really have that kind of, you know, executive producer uh that, that really can come in and and you know dictate and you know and, and also pacify both the executives and the creatives and get everybody on the same page. And and again, that's why I wondered if maybe this John Berg guy might be that moving forward but we won't know uh really the earliest example we might have is is wonder woman so uh, like you said you know i don't yeah i don't know yeah i mean you know dc fans who are critical of marvel say well all the movies they feel alike and and some you know even some casual movie fans sure uh, who aren't really invested say that and to a certain extent i think that is a fair criticism although i do think that marvel's output has sort of gotten a little more varied and interesting in, in recent years. And I say that as someone who's liked a lot of their movies, most of their movies, I've been very entertaining. But you do have at least that sense of continuity and feeling like everyone involved is on the same page and they know what they're making. For better or for worse, you don't see a lot of Marvel movies I don't think, maybe since Iron Man 2, you, even if you don't like them, they don't, you don't go in saying, well, they didn't know what the heck they were making. Right. And they wound up with a mess. Like, the thing about the DC movies is even when there are things about them that you like, the finished product, they feel so messy. Like, there are multiple people and multiple interests all fighting to control this movie. Are we making a dark and gritty and violent Suicide Squad? Or are we making, like, this, you know fun, kind of punk rock, colorful, bouncy, lively, PG-13, almost 
family movie. It's like, and, and the movie tries to kind of do both at the same time, and it ends up doing neither. Yep. Like, that's the sort of thing where you, you need somebody sort of who's got final say, who's got some taste, and knows what's going on, and knows what he wants, and can sort of steer traffic, uh, and be the David O. Selznick, as you said. Uh, that's the thing that the DC movies have been missing, is that they have these flashes, but they're sort of buried amidst all this confusion and different stuff that doesn't really fit together. They're like a jigsaw puzzle that's made out of five different jigsaw puzzles that have been just thrown in the air and landed down together. It's, they just feel so messy, and, and they need a little bit of coherence. That's the thing that uh, Marvel has had that, that so far Warner's DC movies, at least to me, have, have not had. I hope uh, Hasbro is paying attention to what's going on on both sides as well. Because they're obviously entering into this shared universe with Transformers and G.I. Joe and ROM and everything else that they've got planned that they're putting all together and everything. And it's, um, yeah, I, you, as you say, the, they could very well be jigsaw puzzle pieces that are being, you know, kind of pounded together to fit rather than truly fitting. And that's why it's like, okay, you you know, you, you're the ones that are saying you want to put the Transformers and G.I. Joe together. Well, I, I hope it makes sense. And and again, I, I mean, I have I have no investment in that, uh, you know, even from an emotional standpoint. I haven't watched a lot of them, but it is interesting how all the studios are getting into the franchise business. Universal's doing it with the monsters, and they they announced that you know that kind of plan, and it sounds okay on paper, but then to execute it right Doesn't now, sound you know, okay on paper. Frankly, well, <laughs> it terrifies me a lot of the time. Well, Universal, they did it in the forties. And again, they did it with true. a with a studio system that knew how to do oh, it. That's true. So that is very true. That, you know, that is a fair point. You know, and and again, also the other thing is they want to be different, and I'm sure that their makeup people are and and special effects people want to create something new and something different. But every time they do, it pales in comparison to what Universal did with those characters in the '40s and what Hammer did with them in British films in the '50s and '60s. It's just not the same. And I and I wonder what the plan is. You know, Alex Ross, the great comic book artist and cover artist, uh, was commissioned by Universal to do a bunch of new uh, Alex Ross style kind of uh, beautiful paintings and stuff of the classic Universal monsters. And, you know, he went back to basics because those are the versions of the character he loves best. So you're getting a Lugosi Dracula. You're getting a Karloff Frankenstein and a Cheney Wolfman, uh, not a Benicio Del Toro Wolfman. So I, you know, yeah, I, I, I wonder what's going to happen with Universal, but also, and the the bigger question is, and you know, uh, what do you think of these producer-led franchises versus uh, the auteur, film director tradition that that most things have had? Because outside of the Marvel films, I would say the Bond films as well, the James Bond films, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we're really just kind of getting started with Star Wars. I mean, we really only have. The six original movie, or you know, this the three move original movies, the three prequels, and then you know we'll see what happens now with Rogue One, uh, and Force Awakens, obviously. But I mean, that's the thing; they're really at the start of what they're trying to do. But what do you think of this kind of producer-led franchise movement in Hollywood these days? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, in the case of Universal, and going back to those old Universal monster movies that you mentioned, it might be worth noting that while some of those sort of monster mashup movies that came 
while they're, 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 they were okay and they were pretty fun, like, that was basically done out of creative desperation, too. Like, they had kind of exhausted all of the different franchises, and then the question became, well, how do we keep this going? And the answer became, okay, well, what if Frankenstein met the Wolfman? Sure. And then what if we threw Dracula in there, too? And then... And then it was like, hey, Abbott and Costello could meet these characters. You know, there was, there was a certain amount of sort of financial desperation or creative desperation mm-hmm. that sort of drove it. Um, it wasn't, they didn't set out to make a shared universe of Dracula and Frankenstein. That was sort of something they stumbled upon later at the sort of tail end of that whole cycle. True. Uh, and, and so when I look at what's going on, obviously Marvel has done a pretty terrific job of uh, doing it, but I haven't seen a lot of other sort of contemporary successful examples. And, you know, to me, just as an observer, I'm not a filmmaker, I'm just a film lover, a film critic, whatever you want to say, it seems like it's hard enough to make one good movie. <laughs> and it, it, it just seems like when your task is, <clears throat> we're not going to make one good movie, we're going to make not even one franchise, we're going to make a universe with multiple franchises, with multiple characters, all crossing over into one another, you are, you are raising the difficulty level just from the start to such an absurd degree. And Marvel does kind of make it look easy. And I, I think, and they're so successful financially and creatively at it that I understand why other people want to do it. But it's, you know, it's a case where that may not be that replicable mm-hmm. for other uh, properties and franchises. And, you know, you mentioned Hasbro and, you know, they own all of these different properties. Maybe they don't fit together all that well, <laughs> other than the fact that they're all owned by someone. You know what I mean? I like, do. And sure, there have been, like, comic books that have paired Transformers and G.I. Joe before. But you look at the list of all the other properties, they claim that they're also going to combine into one thing. And it. It kind of sounds like a mess. It's like I, would, I do not envy the people who are responsible for trying to make something coherent and uh, sort of something one universe out of all that stuff. That sounds like an incredibly difficult job uh, to make that work in any sort of narrative sense. So I, I, when I hear about these, these universes, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I want to say I'm skeptical, but I'm wary. I'm nervous uh, because I'm going to see these movies one way or the other. Sure. And I, like I said, I always hope they're good, but the degree of difficulty on a lot of these, uh, they just, they, they make me, they make me very nervous in terms of the, you know, producer driven side of it. You know, uh, most of my favorite movies are movies that were made by very strong directors with very unique visions mm-hmm. that were, if not let, left to their own devices, they certainly had a great deal of say in what they were making, what they were writing, what they were directing, what they were editing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Marvel movies, as good as they are, and as enjoyable as they are as a film fan as, and as a comic book fan, I don't know that they necessarily fall into that category. But, again, I think it comes down to who is the producer? Who is the person in charge? And is there a strong voice, or are there eight people in a room all arguing with one another and changing a movie in the middle of shooting or in the middle of editing? Uh, is, are, are they setting out to make one movie and then releasing another? I think that's the real thing. I, I think a producer-driven movie can be great. Uh, yeah. Maybe not an all-time classic, but certainly very enjoyable. It's just a matter of 
well, who is the producer and how many producers are the ones in charge? Yeah, I agree. And another another problem, too, is, you know, uh, I, and I've heard older filmmakers complain about this. I know Francis Ford Coppola said, you know, Hollywood isn't made, interested in making good stories anymore. They want to make carnival rides. And uh, Rob last night, Rob Burnett, made the point uh, and said, you know, uh, they believe that all the film Hollywood believes that all the filmgoers want from the theaters is spectacle. And I think that that's a portion of it, given the size of the screen, the great sound that we get in theaters and stuff. But I do think, that, you know, obviously, and I'm sure you agree at the foundation, there still needs to be good acting and a good story. And I wonder it surprises me because there have been so many other attempts at genre films that haven't worked because there is no story. And I mean, you know, and, and unfortunately, a lot of their names are, are escaping me right now. But it isn't hard to think. And really, if we went back and had, you know, just a list of all the films that came out in the last few years, you can pick them apart and say, OK, like, you know, Hancock didn't work. You know, I mean, there's a superhero movie that they tried. Uh, I, was it Sky? It wasn't Skyfall. It was something with Sky in it. That was a big sci fi film. And it looked, you know, really interesting. But there wasn't a good story there. And again, it's just or Battlefield uh, L.A. or whatever the hell it was called. Um, Battle Los Angeles. These yeah, movies Battle were Los so Angeles. forgettable, you don't even remember the title. Right, right. I mean, that's what I'm saying. And again, they were big, and they'd have, like, you know, uh, The Rock or Vin Diesel or somebody like that, and a lot of explosions and a lot of spectacle, but no story. And and again, right. they, you know, it just seems like they're just shoveling hundreds of millions of dollars into into the uh, furnace and, and just burning money. And it's like, yeah, but you, you still need a story. What the fuck are you guys doing? And again, you so, you assumed that with... Warner Brothers having the DC library and, and, and Disney having the Marvel library. Oh, look, there's a foundation of stories. I mean, Suicide Squad, I said this last night. You know, as you said, I'm, I'm a huge Ostrander fan as well. There's 20 years, literally, of Suicide Squad stories that you could pick from. Gail Simone did some great ones as well. Uh, you know, uh, Chris, Chris Gage. I mean, that's the thing. So many of these people have written good Suicide Squad stories that you could have chosen from. Instead of the shit that we got, we got last week. So yeah, I don't yeah, get it. I, yeah. I mean, there is this sort of unfortunate, almost like a feedback loop that's going on, where you know, television has really replaced yeah. movies in a lot of ways, not entirely, but certainly they're competing much more for, I would say, serious uh, storytelling. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that there aren't serious movies. There aren't good movies that, you know, there's, there have been tons of great movies that have come out this year. Now, they might not have been the biggest budget movies. They might have been the mid-range movies, the few that are left. They might have been more indie movies, art house movies, festival sure. movies, that sort of thing. But, you know, television has really uh, become the destination, I think, for adult storytelling. And it's easy to see why, because... You have a lot of networks. You know, we were talking about Netflix before, and for be you know, for better or worse, they are they are bringing they are really letting you know artists, uh, filmmakers make the shows they want to make. Yep. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, back in the, the 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 formula always for television was well, you go make a pilot, and then if we like the pilot, you can go make more, or maybe we'll tell you to make different, we'll change the pilot, et cetera, et cetera, and that's still the way. It's, done in some places, but Netflix a lot of times will say to a, a, a filmmaker, here's 50 million bucks, go make us 13 episodes. We already know our audience because of our metrics and our algorithms. 
we already know that the audience is there for this show, and they're going to watch it. So just go make the entire series. Go make 10 episodes. Uh, or go make two seasons. You know, like I think House of Cards, when it was first greenlit, it was greenlit right off the bat for like two full seasons. Yeah. And now the, the people making that show can plan out two full seasons of where they want their show to go right off the get-go. Yep. And they have that big canvas to work from. Uh, so when, you, when you're comparing, you know, a canvas of 100 minutes versus, you know, 30 hours in terms of what kind of story you can tell, what kind of characters you can de- develop, there really is almost no comparison. So mm-hmm. I, I sort of, I, I, I get that. So how does a movie compete with that? Well, they, what, the thing that movies can still do is the word you use, is spectacle, right? That, you know, we can put it on the biggest screen, we can have much bigger budgets, we can have greater special effects, we can have more visually interesting movies. Uh, but the problem is, as you, I think, correctly identified, is when you only focus on that and when you don't put enough emphasis on story and characters, you get a lot of very forgettable, decent-looking but boring movies. Yep. And I think the danger is that when you identify your medium as the place for spectacle and nothing else, people eventually go, well, why am I paying $25 to, to go see this movie, which I live in New York, and to see... Uh, you know, like Suicide Squad in IMAX, for example, is going to cost you more than 20 bucks. That's crazy. And it's like, why would I pay $20 for one movie that I'm going to forget about as soon as it's over in IMAX when I could pay 10 bucks for an entire month of Netflix and see dozens of movies and, you know, dozens of hours of TV just from that one $10 charge? Yep. I think that's, you know, and it's, that's a problem, I think, in the comic book world in general. Just speaking for myself, it's like comics have gotten so expensive that you're like, well, why would I pay $25 for, I don't know, four, maybe five comic books? When you look at what you could spend that money on, whether it's a, a month of Netflix or two months of Netflix, sure. it's, it's tough to justify that, that, that price. No, you're right about that. And in fact, in the comic world, I mean, that's... The recurring question that I give to the DC and Marvel guys when Image puts out a $9.99 first trade and does everything they can to make sure that their trades are no more expensive than $19.99, and a lot of them are $14.99. And they are, you know, individual stories, and they've got a point. They have a finish. They, you know, I, I mean, even DC and Marvel at their best, not every five-issue or six-issue arc is worthy of being a trade. I mean, they, I, right. all, all the creators have the best intentions, but it's just, you know, some stories just don't work. And again, that's a half a year of Spider-Man or X-Men or whatever title you want to pick. And um, like you said, there certainly are other options in other entertainment uh, platforms to, to spend that money. But yeah, there, I mean, it's, no, it is getting ridiculous with, with comic books as well. But I want to ask, as, you, as we talk about, you know, streaming television and the benefits of it, I am, as, you, as we said at the start of the conversation, I am looking forward to Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access because, you know, the way Brian Fuller this week has been describing the show mm-hmm. and that it is going to be, it's funny, Straczynski said the same thing about Babylon 5 and describe it as a novel for television. And 20 years ago was doing that with Babylon 5 and every season, much like we do see now in a lot of television shows, every season had its own specific arc. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. for the overall story. Uh, and it will be fun to compare the J.J. J. Abrams, uh, the Kelvin Universe movies 
of Star Trek to what Brian Fuller and company have planned for uh, for Star Trek Discovery. Did you see Star Trek Beyond, first of all? Oh, yeah. That was actually, I mean, it's off the top of my head, probably, if not my favorite sort of one, uh, bigger movie of the summer, certainly in that top three or five, for sure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I did too. It's funny. I agree with Rob Burnett. Rob's really an, an Uber Trek guy. You know, he's he was part of the fan film, too, that's being sued by Paramount and, and CBS, that Axonar movie. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, but Rob is one of those real Uber Trek fans in the same way that a Star Wars fan will really kind of nitpick everything. The only thing that drives me nuts about the Abrams films are, um, and, and Rob said this as well, they're, they're kind of dicks. All the characters, like the way they play them. M- mostly for me, it's Zachary Quinto. He just doesn't have that Leonard Nimoy panache that he brought to Spock that had that poker face calmness, serenity. And, I mean, they almost wrote him. I make the comparison with Jason Todd, the second Robin, in that to make him so different from Dick Grayson, they kind of made Jason Todd a dick. And they didn't do it intentionally, but he was a criminal that was trying to steal the tires off the Batmobile when we first see him. And then slowly, because he wasn't Dick, he kind of did his own thing. He broke the code and killed a criminal and then went after the Joker and ends up getting killed along the way. And, you know, he was just kind of the, the, the jerky Robin. And I think giving Spock these, these emotions that he had to deal with, Zachary Quinto Spock, killing his mother, destroying his planet. I mean, you know, Nimoy says it himself in the first movie. He's like, Jim, I just lost my planet and my mother. Believe me, I'm emotionally compromised. And so you see emotions in, in Quinto Spock, and I think it hurts the character. I think it, it makes him, when he has his debates with Leonard McCoy, I think he's the lesser character and McCoy kind of wins because Spock is also emotional. We saw it in Star Trek Beyond. And, and you just didn't get the feeling that these guys work together. And, and I mean, I like, I like uh, Carl Urban as McCoy. I didn't mind, I, I didn't mind Christopher Pine as, as Kirk, but I can't disagree with Rob when he says both Kirk and Spock are kind of jerks. <laughs> and it does kind of take away from the movies. I, I enjoyed Beyond, and I'm like, no, it was a lot of fun. And I think for mainstream audiences, but I have to say, as a hardcore Trek fan, it's like, you know, these guys are play acting, and they just don't they don't they don't assume the characters the way that the original actors did. That's interesting. I you know I haven't really had that problem. I mean, maybe I'm not quite as big of a uh, hardcore Star Trek fan. Uh, I like Star Trek a lot. Uh, I've seen a lot of the old show. I've seen. A lot of pretty much all the series except Enterprise, which okay. I never really watched, and I've seen all the movies. Um, I liked this one because it, it to me it really felt like even more that certainly more than the last movie, and, and oh, yeah. as much or more than the, than the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, which I liked. I wasn't a huge fan of the second one, but I liked the first one. I agree. Uh, it really, it really to me captured a lot of the spirit, maybe not of the individual characters, as you're saying, but the spirit of the old show, which to me was rooted in this sense of, you know, the exploration and heroism and selflessness and the idea in in the new movie that they are up against this sort of uh, tyrant who is preaching struggle is strength and says that your unity is your weakness and all that sort of stuff. You know, getting back to the kind of, frankly, like progressive values that embodied the old show and what the old show was all about, um, the sort of 
the diversity of the crew and mm-hmm. and the, the idea that the future would be a brighter, uh, happier place um, full of sort of optimism. Like, I really enjoyed that part of the new movie and the way that they positioned the, the bad guy um, as a kind of representative of a lot of um, sort of the... Uh, the, the different issues that are going on right now in our society. Sure. Um, I thought were, was very clever, and I thought that they were well integrated into what was a pretty entertaining action movie. I think Justin Lin is a is a, one of our better big-time action directors. I really enjoyed a lot of the Fast and Furious movies he's made, and I thought he did a great job kind of combining the, the action side of the, the certainly the Star Trek movies and still maintaining a lot of the, the, the sort of flavor of the old show. So I, I, was, I was a big fan of, uh, of, of Star Trek Beyond, and I actually liked a lot of the scenes with Spock and Bones kind of you know, quarreling. Mm-hmm. I thought that was some of the best stuff in the movie. Well, and, I, and I, on the surface, I agree with a lot of what you said um, in terms of the story and the contrast to the message of Star Trek, and clearly... Uh, that came through the writing, and, and, and the writing was in really good hands. And I'm forgetting uh, Simon Pegg's co-writer, who actually played Sulu's husband in, in the film. That's right, Doug Young. Doug Young, name. thank you very much. I'm really glad you said that. But yeah, because I heard them both on the Star Trek official uh, CBS podcast, and it's, it's very obvious that both... And by the way, Doug Young's made a lot of really good television. He was doing that, um, uh, oh God, the Kurt Russell, Dark Blue. Uh, he did the, telev- mm-hmm. the TNT television version of Dark Blue, which was a really good series. Um, mm-hmm. And also, by the way, I hear he's attached to Scalped, the uh, the Jason Aaron uh, R.M. Guerra. Oh. Yeah, so I'm really interested. And I got to talk to Jason and uh, find out what's <laughs> what's going on with the Scalped movie. But I think that's that's a really good sign. But no, they they understood the essence of Star Trek, and I agree with you. I think. Uh, you know, Idris Elba's character as the bad guy is very uh, well defined, and I think it's a good use of fan service without hitting us over the head the way they did with uh, Star Trek Into Darkness and the con comparisons, which I found really like, okay, yeah, we get it. Yeah, no, we remember the movie too. We remember the first movie. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and it's and really what a what a what a missed opportunity having such a great actor as Benedict Cumberbatch and really you know underserving I think him with a with a role that anyone really could have played. It really wasn't made special by Cumberbatch in the way that actually right. Montalban was able to do it with uh, with the television series and the movie as well when he, you know when he played Khan. So I you know yeah, but I but I, you know I came out of it very entertained. It's funny having the conversation with Rob last night and like I said being the hardcore Trek fan, I had these problems with Zachary Quinto from film 1. He just feels like he's play acting and again he just lacks that Nimoy demeanor and just that that kind of feeling. And again, maybe it's because they wrote Spock differently, but I think it's kind of it does. It lessens the character if he is not more centered and just, you know, yeah, more comfortable being himself or at least hiding whatever half Vulcan, half human problems he has. I mean, it just, you know, it was always subtle and also the luxury of having three seasons to occasionally refer to it in the television show with Nimoy and then occasionally in the movies, though not much, because really from, I think, the first motion picture on, Spock's character arc from Star Trek One till the end of his life uh, literally was when he when he made contact with V'ger, he understood why he needed both sides and he was very centered. And in fact, that's what comes through in the Wrath of Khan. While Kirk is doubting himself, 
Spock is like, look, I know you're worried that you're too old to do this job anymore. I know what you can do. I know what we can do. And we're going to be fine. I mean, that to me, that's the subtext of Wrath of Khan. Is as Kirk is just kind of, like, I don't know, uh, you know, whatever. Spock is the reassuring hand of, okay, we're doing this. And, you know, I mean, and not to the point where he's taking over for the captain, but he's just there with the right answer at the right time. And, and, it, and it makes Kirk more confident as the story goes on to the point where at the end when Genesis blows up and he turns to look and make sure that his friend is there and he's not in his chair, what's wrong? And then you get the word, Jim, you better come down here. And it's like, holy shit, you know, I'm losing my friend. I'm losing my right arm. And then that's what makes it so emotionally great. You know, God, Star Trek into darkness, please. These guys barely, you know, they've only known each other for six months. And they're professing this great love for each other. And aren't we a good team? They say that as well in Star Trek Beyond. And it's like, well, if you are, I'm going to have to take your word for it. Because I haven't seen it in three movies. But okay. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, I, I revisited a lot of the, uh, the original Star Trek movies this summer. And I actually, I don't hate Star Trek The Motion Picture. And one of the things I like best about it is, is something you identified, which is is the way that that movie actually has kind of a huge uh, character moment for Spock and his development. But for me, uh, I always feel like part of the issue with that movie is that in the next movie, Spock dies. Yes. And I, uh, I feel like a lot of that character development kind of gets forgotten, at least for a long time, because then he dies, and then they got to bring him back, and then he's forgotten everything, and they're kind of trying to reacquaint him with himself, and his right. memory is hazy. And so, like, this big kind of character-shattering moment that he, this, this uh, kind of epiphany he has because of Viger in the first movie, it kind of gets lost. Uh, so I think, in a way, as great as Star Trek II is, and the death of Spock is such a great moment as well, it's almost, it almost, like, undermines uh, one of the best things about Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is a movie people kind of like to... Uh, look down on and rag on, which I, I don't think is as really fair because I actually I kind of like that movie. It's it's kind of underrated in my opinion. No, uh, I, I, and not, Robert Wise as well. I mean, you know, one of one a really underrated classic film director. I always feel like Robert Wise doesn't get his due for the different films yeah. that he's made over his career. But go on. Yeah, no, the other yeah he he was a he was a great director and he he had a wonderful career. But the only other thing I was going to say was that you know I I sort of. I have to say that I am kind of, I just don't share your, your sort of, your take on Zachary Quinno and the, and the new cast. I mean, I think they've, I, I always kind of marvel at how well they cast the new, the new, uh, the new cast to sort of at least remind us of the old cast, but kind of make them their own. And, and I, I don't really, I'm kind of glad that, that Zachary Quinno isn't just doing a Leonard Nimoy impression and, and uh, that Chris Pine isn't just doing a Kirk impression. I, that's one of the things I kind of enjoy about the new movies is that they remind me of the old cast, but they're, they're, they're kind of their own thing, and they're not too beholden to what's come before. And in a way, I felt what, un, what undermined the second movie so much was that it did feel too beholden. It did feel like they were so desperate to try to recreate uh, Khan and to recreate that scene of the death, and sure. as you said, in a way that they hadn't really earned yet. And, yeah, in the new movie, they are kind of uh, making a big deal out of them being a team and whether they should stay together. Uh, I guess you're right about that. To me, though, that was more, I don't know, it was more symbolic. To me, it was like, this is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and Star Trek Beyond, I think, is a referendum on Star Trek. It's almost as if they're saying, you know, when Captain Kirk in the beginning of the movie is going 
what am I doing out here? What is my purpose? He's essentially saying, well, what is Star Trek's purpose? Sure, sure. Uh, the world is so different than the one that created Star Trek. True. What purpose does it have now? What value does the ideas behind Star Trek, those old optimistic values about the new frontier, do they still serve a purpose? And I think if you like the movie, hopefully, the, uh, the answer is yes, they do. And I think that was something I enjoyed about the movie is, kind of rejecting the, the negativity and the cynicism of Star Trek Into Darkness and saying uh, the old way, the old Star Trek into lightness isn't such a bad thing and that there is still a place for that in our culture. I, I, uh, I, I, that was something I liked about the, the new movie. No, and I, and I agree with you, and I'll be honest. I, I came out of Beyond looking and saying, hey, you know, you're going to do a fourth movie? Great. Again, it's it's mostly Quinto, and I and I have to admit that maybe some of my current views are clouded by my talk last night with Rob. But that said, I want to point, pick up something you said about the original films, and I agree with you. In in three and four, Spock is still kind of refining his way. I do think by the end of four, he's himself again, and I think in the subsequent films, again is comfortable on in both sides of who he is. And then again, you even see it when he when he showed up on Next Generation. Uh, and and is on Romulus trying to kind of help the Romulans find their themselves and everything and that and that's the thing I really felt and 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 again his appearance especially in the first J.J. Uh, J. Abrams movie where he has the real significant role um, that he is very comfortable with himself and is now trying to help others reach that same kind of level of understanding and that's the thing he tries to tell Kim Cattrall's character in in six. You know, logic isn't yeah. everything. You've got to have both sides to really understand what's going on. And, you know, and, and as he says, I mean, obviously she's plotting against them. And it's like, I guess neither of us were really listening to each other that night. I mean, and that's the great thing is that there's there's tragedy in the fact that, yeah, now Spock has kind of found himself. But, you know, is also like kind of just dealing with everybody else trying to figure out who they are. And even that conversation with Data in that uh in that two-part uh, Next Generation episode, I think is is great, and and they give they give Data that wonderful line when he's like, you know, would you have done, done anything differently in your life? And he's like, I have no regrets. And he's like, no regrets. That's a human emotion. And it's just like, and he goes, yeah, I guess so. And it's like that's that's fantastic. And I mean, that's that's why again, I I think it started with Viger, and it it really led uh, Nimoy and and his Spock on a very interesting path that that continued throughout his characterization, and maybe because he had so much say in the way that his character would be portrayed. I'm reading those oral history books that just came out about Star Trek, and the, only the first volumes out, which is the first 25 years. But you really get into a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And, yeah, Nimoy really, to get him involved in the movies, really kind of demanded a seat at the story table. And it's like, yeah, if you want Spock, then Spock better go the right way. And I think that's only helped in the times that he's played Spock. So, blah, blah, well. blah. <laughs> Well, the one thing I would just say in closing on the, on this subject is just that we both agree that Star Trek One is not that terrible, and you should yes. go go watch it. It's underrated, so oh, yeah. it's it's about time uh, that movie was no longer this sort of like the butt of jokes and oh, it's so long and boring and like I did a whole the the, the official Star Trek podcast you mentioned. I was a guest on an episode specifically just re- like talking about why that movie is good. Oh, and that's great! I wrote a big. Yeah, and I wrote a big piece about the film on uh, ScreenCrush.com. Cool. Uh, also, the same thing, defending that movie. So if uh, people want to hear more of, of me yakking out about that, they can, they can find that. 
Okay, and do we have a couple more minutes? Because I wanted to ask you a couple more things, if we could. Yeah, sure. Okay, because I don't. Well, I know you got a baby waiting and everything, man. So I don't. Wanna... I, uh, yes, I do. I appreciate your <laughs> your consideration. <laughs> All right. First, um, you also did a whole series of uh, of looks back at a lot of the cliffhangers and the original superhero movies, and I know you did this a couple years ago. How far did you get? And and you know, do you feel you finished with that subject? Uh, I would have loved to have kept going. I, I, yeah, I was trying to watch every single comic book movie ever made. And, uh, unfortunately the audience for, uh, reading about obscure 1940s serials is not, not that, not that huge. So I had to sort of uh, indefinitely postpone it, uh, for the moment. Um, okay. I got through most, I got through most of them. Okay. Um, and got kind of got bogged down in some of the, the, Super obscure ones that no one no one remembers even the characters, let alone the the, uh, the serials. But yeah, it was fascinating to go back and watch those um, because I hadn't seen most of them before, and to sort of consider where not only filmmaking but the sort of the, the you know these these superhero and comic book icons and the the ideas behind them have shifted over time. It was pretty interesting to. Uh, watch. I don't remember how many installments I did before my editor at the time was kind of like, uh, maybe your time is better spent doing something else. But uh, <laughs> it, it was it was fascinating to do while while uh, while I was allowed to. Um, I'd have to go back and look and see how many I got through. But um, uh, certainly, I covered uh, you know the very first ones and through some of the more obscure ones. But the, the issue was, yeah, there there wasn't a huge audience and. To even do one of them, these are serials that we're talking about. So there are 15 or 12 chapters. Yeah. Each chapter is, is you know, 10 to 15 minutes or more. Uh, so it was a huge amount of time just to watch one, much sure. less to write uh, an extensive piece about them. So No, I can appreciate yeah, that, that was, man. No, it was, yeah, it was a tall order. <laughs> but yeah, I, was, I was with you. So I was one of those few. So I remember, yeah. you know, and especially like, you know, Spy Smasher, which actually is one of the better ones, but again, an obscure hero. That you know, people yeah. Spy Smasher is great. That was probably the best one that I watched. Um, Spy Smasher um, is one that is worth seeking out. I'm not sure if they're you know where how you can find them. I was finding some of these were on YouTube. They yes. would get put up and taken down. Some yes. of them you can find bootlegs. Some of them are legally available, which is great. Oh, the Batman ones you can actually buy legal yes. copies of. Um, but yeah, Spice Smasher of all the ones that I watched, and I'm looking now at the list, I watched about a dozen of them um, before I was finally told to pack it in for a while. Uh, Spice Smasher was by far my, my favorite one of, of the bunch. It's really, really cool. It's just super exciting, and the, um, the special effects, well, not great, the stunts are, are great. Like, yeah. clearly, they're guys jumping off of airplanes and running through fire and getting into these crazy fist fights they just have a lot of energy and excitement in them that uh a lot of even more recent superhero movies that are so reliant on kind of middling boring un- unimpressive cgi they just can't quite capture um like you watch spy smash and you go a, a lunatic actually did this he actually jumped off that thing he actually ran through that fire like there's a level of sort of danger and daring do and spirit that in a lot of more recent movies, while beautiful and impressive, they, they can't quite match. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about, too, and I told you because they released a trailer today. There's a new 
kind of response to the People versus George Lucas indie movie that kind of shit on all the Star Wars prequels. And now we're finding that there is, <laughs> much like the fans of Ben Riley that I was discussing with Danny Fingeroff a couple of episodes ago, uh, there are some very strong people that are standing up and going, hey, we like the prequels, fuck you. And, and, and you were one of the people that they interviewed in terms of making the movie. And I just want to know, yeah, what did they ask and what was that experience like? Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, first of all, I just want to say I'm not a huge defender of the prequels. And uh, That's fine. I, I, I wasn't one of the people saying, you know, they're like underrated masterpieces or anything like that. But I do think to a certain extent the sort of response uh, to them is, is, is a little bit overblown. And in some ways I think they're, even though they're certainly not as good as the original Star Wars trilogy, in some ways they're just as interesting, and maybe they're even more interesting in some ways, just because they were made by this guy uh, who had a huge amount of power to do whatever he wanted and was able to kind of engineer these very strange movies on a massive scale, uh, for better or for worse. You know, like we, we were talking about some of these movies that have spectacle and nothing else, um, uh, these modern blockbusters that have a lot of money behind them, but maybe no soul or no spirit. The prequels, as messy and as strange and as, frankly, as bad as they often are, there is a filmmaker at work. There is a guy with a lot of ideas at work. There is a guy pushing the boundaries of technology and trying things and experimenting and trying to say something about politics and society. Um, there are a lot of ideas in them. Um, There's a finished product sometimes is uh, odd, off-putting, strange. The plots don't always make sense. They can be picked apart. I've, I've seen some very entertaining dissections of them on YouTube, but there's something about them. There is something to them. Sure. Um, so that was sort of the, the, the conversations that we were having. Um, and I think, I just think in general, George Lucas is sort of a fascinating and perhaps un, underappreciated figure in the sense that he gave us this universe that is so widely beloved. Um, and, but that in some ways he's almost the ultimate villain of this universe. It's, you know, the oh, yeah. response to, the response to the, the, the Force Awakens, a movie I really enjoyed. Me the too. idea that, well, now that we got rid of him, Star Wars is good again. Thank God George Lucas is gone. Um, and I, I don't dispute the fact that, um, that uh, The Force Awakens is a very entertaining movie with wonderful characters. And I think they did a fabulous job sort of reinventing the franchise. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't be more excited for episode eight. Yes. But when you look at what that movie was, it's almost a beat for beat rehash <laughs> of the original Star Wars. Yes. And I think J.J. Abrams did a fantastic job doing it. A very clever job doing it, frankly. But, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the prequels is that they're not that. That George Lucas didn't try to just uh, sort of redo exactly what he had done before. He did try to do something different. Yes. Now, maybe it was uh, kind of a disaster at times, but at least he was trying something. And so, you know, do you prefer the sort of, you know, well-calculated remake, or do you prefer the messy, maybe misguided, but kind of interesting attempt at something different? There's, you know, 
uh, perhaps there's an argument to be made that there's room in our universe for both of those things. So that's sort of um, the position that I have about George Lucas. I think he's a fascinating guy. I think he's maybe an underrated filmmaker. I think that he's gotten, to a certain extent, a bit of a raw deal. So True. that was kind of the stuff that they were asking me about in, um, in, in that interview. And I'm curious to see the finished film. It's called The Prequel Strike Back, A Fan's Journey. And again, there's a teaser trailer out there, and you briefly see right, that. Right. Yeah, it was funny. You told me the teaser. I was in the trailer. I had no idea. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You're literally just, you know, one comment or whatever. And I'm like, that's Matt Singer. Wait a minute. And I'm talking to him yep. today. So that was it, fortuitous timing. Same thing with all the announcements about uh, Star Trek Discovery and talking to Rob last night and, and, and the various story and character details that Brian Fuller uh, released at the TCA uh, uh, meetings that were going on for the press this week, you know, that all happened last night and, and we got all that information and it's like, all right, well, what do you think? And I, and I, you know, for the most part, I agree with you. And also it's interesting timing for this movie because this is the big, I think, geek debate right now in terms of fans really kind of demanding a new position when it comes to storytelling that really is kind of unprecedented. And maybe because again of the uh, loudness of social media, but, you know, we get things like Cap- Captain America Needs a Boyfriend or The Woman from Frozen. I'll, and I confess, because I'm an adult man, I haven't seen Frozen. I don't have children. Uh, but, you know, that, <laughs> that, you know, she needs a girlfriend or whatever, or we need to make her, you know, uh, you know really be obviously, you know, a lesbian or whatever. And, and it's like, okay, I, I can appreciate that, that, those sentiments, but ultimately there's a position for the audience and there's a position for the storytellers. And while I can appreciate the enthusiasm of the audience, I do think, and I'll, and I'll stick with the thing that I, I do know, and that is Captain America and all that. It's like, well, I, I get it, and I can appreciate that feeling coming from what, what they perceive between the Cap and Bucky relationship. I see it as just two really intensely best friends, and I don't see any Brokeback Mountain in there. It's okay if you see it in there, but don't demand it. And it's like, you know, kind of let the storytellers tell their story. And, and I don't know. We've had 75 years of Captain America a certain way. And, I, and, and he's had girlfriends along the way. They may not be apparent in the films. But, you know, we, <laughs> we, we know Peggy and Sharon Carter and we know, we know the others. And, and, and you know, I think, he got, I think he got a lot further with Peggy in the comics than he ever, <laughs> than he ever did in the movie. So, uh, I, you know, I mean, it's just I, I, I think that, again, because of this kind of demand that Star Wars movies be, be a certain way. I think it's interesting timing for this documentary. Yeah, you're, I, I agree. I think it is an interesting time for that, the, the, the line and perhaps the, the disappearing line between mm-hmm. uh, fans and creators um, and fans, you know, the accessibility of, of the Internet kind of making these people available. Yep. Um, I think, I think it's something that, you know, as a critic, I, I get too, you know, like, uh, I think that a lot of the re- angry reactions I get sure. online, um, when I write a review, people don't like, and I'm not saying people aren't entitled to their opinion because God knows I'm of uh, sharing mine online all the time. But the fact that you can respond to someone so quickly, you know, like if I don't like this issue of uh, Captain America, I read, I can find the person who wrote it online and, <laughs> leave an angry comment uh, literally within seconds, like before I even have time to really think about what I've read or what I think, I can, I can share those comments, you know, like, you know, uh, and, and 
Comic book fans have a long and I think very proud tradition of sharing their thoughts positively and negatively with the creators of their work. Um, and I think letter columns, you know, I love sure. reading letter columns sure. as a kid. I, I, I wrote to letter columns. You can find, I had a few printed, frankly. You can find Attaboy. my name in, <laughs> in back issues of Sensational Spider-Man and Marvel Team-Up. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where because they're very embarrassing letters, but they, <laughs> they exist. Um, but, you know, you, to do that, you had to actually take the time to write a letter. Uh, you had to find a stamp. You had to go to a mailbox. And in that time, you might think to yourself, am I really that upset? Is that really this big of a deal? Uh, is this really worth the effort I'm expending? And maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't. And I think that the fact that you can send something so quickly and the fact that 140 characters doesn't allow for a lot of nuance or subtlety or thoughtfulness, all it's really good for is, you know, effusive praise, vitriol or snark. That's really all you can do at 140 characters. That it just kind of, that's the sort of response it, in, it engenders. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that's a, a big reason why this, that, that fans are so vocal nowadays. And I think sometimes it's great. And, and a lot of times I completely agree. I mean, hey, let me tell you, like we were talking about Star Trek, the motion picture, rewatching that movie. Forget about Cap and, and Bucky. Kirk and Spock in Star Trek The Motion Picture are as in love as any men have ever been in love in anything. The way that Kirk looks at Spock when he shows up on the Enterprise in Star Trek The Motion Picture, I mean, I, right. hope, I hope I look at my wife with the love <laughs> that Captain Kirk looks at Mr. Spock. I, honestly, I think it's kind of beautiful. Oh, no, you're uh, right, man. When, That's awesome. Go when on. After, after Spock has his moment with V'ger... There is this very touching scene between those two characters where Spock talks about this simple feeling is how he puts it between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And it is very hard to see that as anything other than the kind of, you know, the, the ideas that powered all of, you know, slash fiction. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's, I think that's great. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to diminish anyone's sort of reading of, of anything. <laughs> But uh, I just I do think that the the way that social media promotes kind of interaction and instantaneous reaction almost before you can kind of formulate a thoughtful response sometimes it can lead to some beautiful things and sometimes it can lead to some ugly things. I would agree. That's very funny. Yeah, they're literally holding hands when he says this simple thing that Vitor can't the understand. The simple feeling, and they're yep. oh yeah, and they're and they're. <clears throat> they're there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a touching scene. It's a great scene. Go find it on YouTube. Or even brings a tear to my eye. When Bones is like, oh, I'm glad we're going the right the same direction as you. Isn't it lucky for you that we're going the right way? And Kirk goes, shut up, Bones. And he looks at it, looks at Spock and goes, oh, yeah. I need him. I need I him. I need him. Yes, and he repeats yep. it. I need him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not too subtle. No, I love it. I think yeah, I understand that. Well, and again, that's the thing. These guys have that intense feeling. Even in Star Trek V, what a terrible movie. But when, you know, uh, Spock is at the gunner station on the Klingon ship and he blows up that fake god. And, and Kirk's like, I thought I was going to die. And he's like, impossible. You were never alone. And he goes to right. hug Spock and he's like, please, Captain, not in front of the Klingons. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm not going to go to bat for Star Trek V, but the, all the best moments in that movie are, yeah, the, the Kirk and the Spock stuff and even and the Bone stuff. Absolutely. That's the best stuff. Yeah, the campfire. The it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. The campfire is ridiculous, but that's really those moments when the three of them are being a team or even when they're trying to, you know, uh, work around Cybok in the ship and stuff or they're in jail. They're in the they're in the they're in the one cell and Scotty breaks them out. No, those are the best scenes. I I completely agree. And yeah, terrible movie, lots of flaws, but there's some significant scenes and it's they get some character moments right. So well, there you go. There, that shows my my Trek love on on my sleeve. So very quickly, any any uh, any any film recommendations of of, of uh, streaming? Oh, film recommendations of of streaming. Let me think. Um, I'll give you a recommendation that's not streaming yet, I don't think. But just as a kind of, for people, and I know that I myself feel this way and talking to people I, I know have felt sort of ground down by the summer at the movies. Hasn't been a very good summer for the bigger, um, the bigger movies. Um, there is a movie coming out this weekend in theaters. I'm not sure how wide of a release it's getting, but it's being released by Lionsgate and CBS Films. So it's not, an, it's not really an art house movie. It's not necessarily an indie movie. Okay. Uh, and it's a crime film. It's a Western in a sense. It's set in modern Texas, but it has a lot of Western imagery. It's called Hell or High Water. It opens this Friday. It has Chris Pine and Ben Foster playing brothers who go on a crime spree. And it has Jeff Bridges uh, playing, like, my favorite Jeff Bridges type that he plays all the time now, which is, like, the ornery southern lawman who talks like he's got a mouth garden and yep. he has a crazy accent. Yeah, like his true it's, grit. It's a, yeah. Exactly. It's like true grit or even R.I.P.D., that terrible movie oh. where he basically played that character also. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, a really, it's a really sharp thriller, and it, it, is, it does kind of harken back to a time when, you know, you could have mid-range budget movies that weren't too big but weren't too small either. Uh, genre films for adults. It's written by uh, the guy who wrote Sicario, if you saw that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's directed by the, the guy who did Startup, which is a great little prison film from a couple of years ago. It's a really satisfying movie, and it's the kind of thing that they don't make that many of uh, anymore. And so if you are a Western fan, if you're a a fan of uh, heist movies, smarter crime and heist movies. Uh, that is just coming out in theaters, and it's, it's really good. And if you're a, pa- a fan of Chris Pine from the new Star Trek movies, he actually gives a really good performance in this as a, as a not very Captain Kirk-like figure uh, and shows uh, that he's got actually some range as an actor in addition to just being kind of a, a movie star guy. So... That was the first thing that came to mind because I just saw that and I, I found it refreshing myself because I've seen a lot of crappy movies this summer. Um, that would be one to put on your radar. I'm thinking it's going to be out in fairly wide release just because it's being released by uh, bigger studios. So that is one um, for sure that I would tell people to look out for. That's cool. No, and I've seen trailers for that. So as soon as you said the title, I'm like, oh, yeah, the Chris Pine movie. Okay, very good to know. Hey, man, like I've said to you a million times, uh, gamer, I'm, I will never, I will always be in your debt for for recommending Gamer to me because Gamer really <laughs> took me by surprise and really entertained me. In that same way that you know, Chronicle, in terms of it just being a small movie that you know you you have no expectations from, and it's like, oh no, this was fun. I actually like this. So you know, I mean, that's as 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 shitty as a job as Josh Trank did with Fantastic Four. I can't hate him because I really loved Chronicle. 
You know, I mean, that's uh, that's just it. I mean, I you know, whatever. I'll, I'm willing to give him another chance on a different movie. Maybe not a big tentpole movie, but I certainly would want to see him kind of get back to his element and, and, and do something along the lines of Chronicle again. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I liked I liked Chronicle a lot too. I, I you know, Fantastic Four. That was such a uh, a boondoggle. I would love to know, you know, like the behind the scenes story of that one. And uh, it yeah. feels like a movie that that in a lot of ways reminded me of Suicide Squad. Sure. You know that this. It seemed like they started out making one movie and then decided they didn't really like that movie and then tried to change course and wound up, you know, basically with neither. You know, they yes. it seemed like they w- maybe started trying to make something that was more of a, a superhero reinvention, something darker, maybe a little more realistic, quote unquote. And at some point said, uh, this isn't working out. Let's try to make a, a big superhero movie. And the, the results were just a total mess. Oh, yeah. It, we'll see what happens with. Suicide Squad, because again, I mean, you know, critics obviously have their problems with it. It seems like the audience, at least after that first weekend, was giving it positive reviews. I don't know how the rest of this week has been, and we'll see as the weekends go on. I mean, even Batman Superman it didn't succeed, but it didn't fail. I mean, I don't even know what, I, I suppose from the, from the Warner Brothers standpoint, because it should have been a billion-dollar movie, it did fail. But I think it, it made more money than I think people would realize. Because it's still made like around eight or you know, or at least grossed around eight or nine hundred million. How much they spent on pre-production and 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 publicity and all the other incentive you know incidentals that go into making marketing a movie. I, I don't know how much that affects you know their profit or, or loss margin, but you know, we'll see. I guess with yeah. Suicide Squad too, because again, it's it is interesting. I think people that don't haven't read the stories and and you know just kind of go in to watch a movie are like, I don't know, I kind of liked it. Yeah, it didn't make any sense, but Will Smith was pretty fun. Sure, I, why not? I got to tell you, man, I got friends that are talking like that. And I'm like, but didn't the you know, lack of story bother you? Like, no, I don't know. I really thought Margot you know, Robbie was funny and Will Smith was fine. And, even, and I'll even say this. Jared Leto was not as annoying as I think we were led to believe, given some of his method acting antics on, on set when he's you know, delivering dead pigs to the uh, cast and peeing in, <laughs> peeing in Will Smith's oatmeal and gross shit like that. It's like, okay. I mean, and that's why, like, when, I mean, whatever's on the cutting room floor in terms of his scenes, because I guess even he's like, I thought I shot a lot more scenes than what I you know, heard made to the final cut or whatever. I'm like, all right, he's not Heath Ledger. He's not Jack Nicholson. But, you know, he was all right. It didn't bother me. I was expecting to hate him a lot more, frankly. Oh uh, yeah, that, I, he's barely in the movie. I don't. I, I was. No, I, I, I agree I, with that. He was, so, he was in the movie so briefly, I, I could barely have a have a, an opinion about him. That's fair. <laughs> I understand. Well, dude, do you, been... do you want one more? You want one more recommendation? Oh sure, yeah. If you got time, then absolutely, yeah, please. Uh, this movie, it's not on. You know, you can't stream it yet, but you can rent it online. And I think it is available on Blu-ray as well already. If you still uh, are a fan of physical media. And that is a movie from earlier this year called Sing Street. It's the newest movie from the guy who made Once, uh, John Carney. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a, a tribute to his own um, childhood growing up in Ireland. It's about a, 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 a teenage boy who sort of sees this beautiful young woman, and to, uh, to talk to her, he lies and claims that he's interested in using her in his band's music video, and the one problem is he is not in a band and has no musical <laughs> talent that he's necessarily aware of, and so he now has to create a band 
to make a music video so he can keep talking to this girl. And it's, uh, it's this really sweet and very charming sort of tribute to the music of that era, and it's this kind of lovely coming-of-age story. And certainly one of the the movies that, having, like, walking out of the theater made me feel uh, so good this year. I just really, really loved that movie. Certainly one of my favorites of of 2016 so far. And if you liked Once, it, it is similar, but it's, it's a little more upbeat and... Uh, not quite as, uh, uh, it's more about pop music and not so much about, you know, kind of singer-songwriter music. So if you didn't necessarily love, like, the music in one, I would say, you know, you might still like this one. All of the songs that they created, it has a great soundtrack, both with old songs and originals that they made for the movie, and they do a great job of kind of capturing the spirit of the era with these very catchy uh, songs that could have been released in in the mid '80s. Oh, very cool! Uh, and could have been hit. So I, that's another one to look out for. Sing Street. I heard uh, your film spotting uh, counterparts on the regular film spotting podcast talk about Sing Street. So, mm-hmm. so I, I'm glad you reminded me of that, and it is one that I want to uh, I want to look for. So that's that's great to hear. That's fantastic, man. Good stuff, Matt Singer. Yeah. Well done, and. Uh, Writing for IndieWire and doing uh, film spotting SVU. Uh, what else? Uh, what? Where other? Where are other platforms that we can find you? Screen Crush, I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Right now, I my my main place is Screen Crush. I'm okay. the editor over there now, and and film critic. So yeah, ScreenCrush.com and <clears throat> excuse me, and yeah, film spotting SVU is is our podcast, which is biweekly, all about the world of streaming movies. Good stuff, man. No, nah, hey, it's it's been far too long. I appreciate you coming back. And uh, thank you, and thank you for spending a little extra time than uh, I think we planned. But uh, as always, good stuff, and uh, let's make sure that uh, years don't pass before we uh, we talk again. Maybe we'll we'll see how Doctor Strange is, but even more importantly, we'll see uh, how uh, how Star Trek Discovery is, and, and maybe uh, talk about that. Sounds good. It was a pleasure. Matt Singer, good stuff. And uh, man, I'll tell you, we'll see what happens with Doctor Strange to uh, close out the superhero movie year of 2017. Certainly a lot more coming up uh, to talk about in the months ahead with Justice League and Wonder Woman and, uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and Thor Ragnarok. So uh, it, it should be interesting. I don't, I'm not even sure what Fox has lined up. I know Gambit is in there somewhere, but I don't know if that's... Well, I guess the next Wolverine, I think, is next for Fox. Anyway, regardless, tremendous conversation. And, of course, Spider-Man Homecoming as well. So lots to talk about. Hopefully we'll uh, catch up with Matt next year and uh, compare the uh, the movie seasons and see if uh, things have changed for the better or for the worse. We'll see. But I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And uh, remember, it was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you again, League, for your support. If you would like to uh, help subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon, go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad right there on the front page or on the tab, and uh, you'll get more information. And again, thank you very much, League, for your support. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where there are great savings on things like Injustice, Gods Among Us, Year 4, the hardcover, Volume 2. Brian Bucoletto has picked up the uh, baton from Tom Taylor and continued this ex- excellent series. Really, when, when DC was really at its worst, one of the books you could count on for, for great stories was Injustice. Uh, a tremendous uh, you know riff on the uh, video game, 
that I think uh, continues to provide excellent entertainment. And uh, that is 45% off for uh, Hardcover Volume 2. And the title of that is, uh, is it just, well, it's God's Among Us Year 4. It's uh, 42% off, $12.64. You can get the Spider-Man by Todd McFarlane uh, Omnibus. And uh, that is a huge book, 440 pages. Big ass omnibus, 45% off, just $41.25. How about Looney Tunes Greatest Hits Trade Paperback Volume 1? Uh, it's called What's Up Doc, and uh, it's uh, Great Warner Brothers uh, cartoon antics, and it's 50% off, it's just $6.49. You can get the creepy hardcover Volume 24. I love these reprints. I was a huge fan of the Warren magazines when they were coming out. These are great because they also uh, have. Uh, the mailbox, you know, the, the letter pages and the ads and stuff. It's it's fantastic. And uh, we're talking about stories written and drawn by, man, listen to this roster. Archie Goodwin, Bruce Jones, Larry Hama, John Severin, Alex Toth, Al Williamson, Walt Simonson, and a hell of a lot more. I'm sure Wheezy uh, Kramer Simonson was, uh, was, you know, taking care of, uh, not Wheezy Kramer, Wheezy Jones, excuse me. Uh, was editing a lot of this stuff too. 42% off, it's just $28.99. Wheezy Kramer's just Chicago radio woman. But that's another story for another day. Check out all these great deals happening at InStockTrades.com. Go to the website and you won't believe the savings you'll find. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your support. Uh, questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Or follow me on Twitter under at John Word Balloon, or on Facebook under my name, John Suntress, and the Word Balloon Network. Uh, thanks again, and uh, keep listening. We've got great uh, episodes still to come for the rest of August. I still have a couple San Diego panels to churn out, and uh, more great talk uh, coming in August and September and throughout the rest of 2017. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.